This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 30th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about the impact of the Tianmen Square incident on science in China. And David Grimm is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The relationship between the Chinese government and the scientific enterprise has been undergoing a lot of change over the past few decades. I spoke with Mara Vistendahl about an especially important turning point in this relationship, the protest and government crackdown at Tiananmen Square 25 years ago. On June 4th, when the Tiananmen crackdown happened, protests had been going on for weeks in Beijing and other cities around China. And many of the protesters were students across a range of fields. Many were in the sciences. Um, you also had scientists directly involved. And, and there were professors who supported the students in the square throughout. And after those weeks of protests, the government finally authorized the army to use whatever means necessary, essentially, to deal with the students in the square. That's what happened when, when the army opened fire on people throughout Beijing. Actually, many, many of the deaths were not in the square that night, but it sent a chilling message for, for everybody. What were some of the things that were being protested at the time, and what were some of the ideas that were being expressed by the people in the square? So part of it was about kind of general um, political reforms and liberalization, and you know this was 1989, so you had change happening across the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. It was a big year, and that wasn't lost on on people in China. But there were also more specific concerns, and especially for scholars and intellectuals in the square, and, and those included things like increasing pay for intellectuals. That was a big issue at the time. They made very little money. And also stopping corruption in the government, or at least uh, in, you know, making the government a little bit more transparent. What were some of the immediate consequences of this crackdown 
on this protest or these protests on science in China? Well, at the time, you had scientists involved in the protests and involved in the kind of overall debates that have been shaping intellectual life in the years leading up to Tiananmen. So because this was a period of a lot of openness, you had discussions happening among scientists about the debate over over whether to have scientific development, you needed uh, political reforms. And there were a number of scientists who were pushing very vocally for reform. Among them was the physicist Fang Lijie and Xu Liangying, who's a science historian. And they challenged the kind of Marxist versions of science. So these debates, they cut at the, end of the very core of what science was in China at the time. And so after the crackdown, what happened to these debates? So after the crackdown, that atmosphere of openness just disappeared. There were consequences, especially for the scientists who'd been most vocal. The Chinese Academy of Social Sciences fired staff who'd been involved with the protests. Fang Lijie, the physicist and and his wife famously took refuge in the U.S. Embassy because they they were wanted by the government. And he, even though he hadn't actually been in the square, he was seen as an instigator. And more generally, people say that the intellectual atmosphere and scientific debate just really suffered afterwards. So that scientists were much more prone to stay inside their labs not talk about anything that might be controversial. And there, there was a big impact on science also in the fact that thousands of Chinese students at the time were abroad. Right. And what happened to them when they were not in the country when this happened? Well, throughout the 1980s, international study, overseas study had become possible for Chinese students and thousands had left. They went to countries like the U.S. and Canada, Australia. And when Tiananmen happened, many became politically active. They were you know, upset about what had happened, um, staged a big march in the U.S. And also many just feared returning. Several Western governments granted these students green cards. The vast majority of them were in the sciences. And for countries like the U.S. and Canada and Australia, it was really a boon to science because they gained these very talented students. You know, at that time, it was the best students that China had to offer. And um, many of them would never return. That sounds like a long-term consequence for China. Was there anything else that really came out of this that seems to have lasted the 25 years since the incident? Yes. When I interviewed scientists who'd been involved with the protests in 1989, they say that there are persistent problems that date back to the Tiananmen crackdown. There's much more money in science today, so raising the pay of intellectuals is, is no longer a complaint that people have. But on the other hand, some say the intellectual atmosphere is, is less open than it could be at this point. And also that there are issues with the way that grant money is distributed. It's a very kind of top-down system in, in China still, with a lot of investment money that ends up wasted, according to people I interviewed. And that's something that the criticism is uh, connects to the way the government is run. So it's not an entirely democratic administration of research money. And that can be linked to the Tiananmen Square incident? Well, that's something that 
existed beforehand and that many people wanted to change in 1989. But the argument is that because of 89, it didn't improve. And in many ways, there was a huge setback for, for science because the discussions about reform that had been happening were silenced. And, and then the, the other big setback was that the th- many, many overseas scientists never returned. And, and it's hard to, to recover that talent once you've lost it. Yeah. So is anything being done to address the concerns of scientists about the state of science in China? And is, is it working? Well, definitely. The government is, is very set on you know, producing more innovative society that's been a major target for years and and also you know just generally increasing research funding and part of that funding for science is going into recruiting back talented scientists who are now overseas many of whom left after Tiananmen as early as the early 1990s the government said basically you know we'll ignore your political background if you come back to China and make a contribution and that was directed at the students who stayed. And some did come back, and even people who were dissidents at the time have come back and set up labs. So that is no longer an issue. But some scientists who did return, including people who were active protesters in 1989, say that a lot of the issues affecting Chinese science are more intransigent and are difficult to combat in a few years. It's a process that would take gradual change. Some people are even more critical and say that the kind of spirit in the 1980s has been lost, and that that's something that's really difficult to recover. Mara, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Mara Vistendahl is a contributing news editor for Science. You can read her story on the impact of Tiananmen Square on science in China at www.sciencemag.org. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on where all that plastic goes. A number of U.S. states have moved to ban microbeads, tiny plastic balls that are added to facial scrubs or other beauty products. These microbeads are just part of a menagerie of plastic bits and debris floating in lakes, rivers, pretty much everywhere. But surprisingly, scientists think there's not enough plastic in the oceans. Right, Dave? Right. There's not as much plastic as we would expect, considering that in 2012 alone, humans produced 300 million tons of plastic. And some of it's going into products, but a lot of it is ending up as waste. And the question is, where is all of it going if it's not ending up in the ocean? So these plastics aren't all swirling around a giant ocean gyre. How do the researchers go about tracking down these missing pollutants? Well, they looked at ice cores, and these are basically giant blocks of ice that are taken from the Arctic and other places. These blocks of ice can reveal various things like past climate. But in this case, the researchers actually melted down pieces of the ice and used a very small filter to see if there were any particulate matter in there. And what they found was they found a ton of tiny particles of things like rayon, polyester, nylon, and polypropylene, all of which are common in a lot of consumer products, things like clothing, cigarette filters, and even diapers. How does this compare to something like the giant ocean garbage patch? Right, and this garbage patch is is literally what it sounds like. It's this 
large area of the ocean that's filled with tons of these tiny little plastic pieces. But it turns out that there are three orders of magnitude more plastics, at least by some counts, trapped in Arctic ice than is in places like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. What are some of the consequences of this finding? Isn't it better that the plastic is locked up in the ice? It is better. The problem is that the ice is melting, and the researchers speculate that under current melting trends, more than one trillion pieces of plastic could be released into the ocean over the next decade. Next up, we have a story on the strength of monkeys. We know humans are the smartest primates, but why aren't we also the strongest? This is kind of a complicated one. So let's start with the initial premise, Dave. What's the expensive tissue hypothesis? Well, Sarah, this basically gets to the idea that our brains require a tremendous amount of energy. In fact, they use about 20% of our energy expenditures when we're resting. So the idea is in order to have an organ that uses that much energy, we must have made other sacrifices in our body. In this study, the researchers were looking to see how energy was used by different tissues like the brain or the kidneys or the muscles in different animals. So how did the animals they looked at, mice, monkeys, and chimps, stack up with each other? Were they pretty closely related? They were. The researchers found that all these animals, based on the rate at which they had evolved and the amount of energy their tissues were using, they all pretty much had pretty similar energy profiles across the species. The differences came when they looked at the human brain and compared it to the brains of some of these other animals, and they found that Perhaps not surprisingly, our brains were burning a lot more energy than some of these other animals' brains, which which we sort of know already. But what was really surprising is when they looked at the muscle. And so we have muscles, they have muscles, but they're all basically the same chemical components. What, what was different? When they compared the muscles across these species, they saw a big difference between what they saw in the human muscles versus what they saw in the muscles of some of these other animals, which suggests that as we evolved and we separated from some of these other animal groups, that we saw changes in the way that we used our muscles that maybe some of these animals didn't. How do we know this isn't just a difference in our diet or how much we exercise, you know, a person versus a chimpanzee? The researchers actually took monkeys and they fed them various diets, some high-fat, high-sugar diets, maybe something a little bit like we might eat. Other monkeys were fed normal diets, allowed a lot more exercise. And what they found was that they couldn't find the same kind of differences in the metabolic activity in these muscles as they had seen when they compared humans to some of these other animal groups. So let's just take it to the, the true test. If we were arm wrestling or perhaps lifting weights, who would win a competition? Well, we've got a video to show that. And if you go to the site, you will see a video of macaques pulling some pretty heavy weights. And when they compared it to the ability of humans, especially very athletic humans like basketball players and professional climbers, they found that the humans were only about half as strong as these monkeys and as of chimps as well. So does this actually suggest that we gave up muscles for bigger brains? What about the idea that maybe we don't need such strong muscles anymore because our brains are so big? Well, that really brings everything full circle because, A, you've got to make sacrifices. If your brain's going to be using that much energy, you've got to downsize some other parts of your body, and we may have done that with our muscles. But it turns out because our brains were so much more advanced, we didn't need our muscles as much. We didn't need to rely as much on brute force as maybe some of these other animals did to survive. Lastly, we have a story on nature versus nurture in parenting. It's long been assumed that women have an inborn nurturing aspect. 
that our relationship to children comes from biology, hormones, and whatnot. But what about men? Is nurturing in their nature? So that's the setup, Dave. Can we talk next about the way something like this might be measured? How can we make comparisons in terms of parenting and biological mechanisms? Well, what we have to do, or at least what the researchers did in this study, is look at different types of families. This was a study conducted in Israel, and the researchers looked at two different types of families. Traditional families where you had a biological mother and a biological father, and the mother did most of the child rearing. The fathers were involved, but not to the extent the mothers were. And then the researchers also looked at homosexual male couples, one of whom was the biological father. The baby was had via surrogate mother. And the other partner played an equal role in caregiving. And so they were looking at these couples for comparison. What kind of measurements did they take? Well, they looked at things like they went to their homes and they videotaped the interactions. They saw who interacted with the children more. They also took saliva samples from the parents. Saliva can reveal, for example, levels of a hormone called oxytocin, which is called the trust hormone, can reveal the level of bonding, actually, between parent and child. And finally, the researchers also did some brain scans of the participants in these trials, and they were looking for how the various parents' brains reacted to the videotapes of themselves interacting with their infants. Wow. So it sounds like they collected a lot of data on different types of parents using different measures. What kind of differences were they able to see? Well, they found that the mothers and their husbands and the homosexual father-father couples all showed the activation of what the researchers call a parenting network in their brain. And that links two pathways. One's involved in emotion and attention and vigilance. Another pathway is turned up in response to learning and experience. Now, in the mothers, the activation was stronger in the pathways that were involved in emotions and attention heterosexual fathers showed more activity in the network, in the brain network that's more dependent on experience. So that initially suggested to the researchers that there was this fundamental difference between at least mothers and fathers, that mothers had a parenting network that was much more emotional and maybe much more primarily involved in caregiving, and fathers played more of a supportive role and sort of maybe had to learn parenting over time. And so when you bring in the homosexual couple, does this change? And it does change. When you look at the homosexual couples, that's told a very different story. All of the homosexual men showed activity that was very similar to that seen in the mothers, in the mother-father couples, which suggests that this is not an innate difference between the sexes, but that whoever is caring for the child or whoever is especially the primary caregiver, whether that person be a male or a female, their brains actually react very similarly to this experience, which suggests it's really there's really not these hardwired differences between male and female, at least when it comes to parenting. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about fish that can count even though they're blind. Also a story about how storms break up sea ice and what impact that's having on sea level rise. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how much IQ should factor into death penalty decisions. Also a story about how citizen science is helping to revive an old NASA probe. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, 
please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.